Hello again. Today's reading, which has much to say about nature and the nature of nature, is titled Credo of Continuation from the book The Sacred Depths of Nature by Dr. Ursula Goodenow. And here are her words. And so I profess my faith. For me, the existence of all this complexity and awareness and intent and beauty and my ability to apprehend it serves as the ultimate meaning and the ultimate value. The continuation of life reaches around, grabs its own tail and forms a sacred circle that requires no further justification, no creator, no superordinate meaning of meaning, no purpose other than that the continuation continue until the sun collapses or the final meteor collides, I confess a credo of continuation. And in so doing, I confess as well a credo of human continuation. We may be the only questioners in the universe, the only ones who have come to understand the astonishing dynamics of cosmic evolution. If we are not, if there are others who know, it is unlikely that we will ever encounter one another. We are also, whether we like it or not, the dominant species and therefore the stewards of this planet. If we can revere how things are and can find a way to express gratitude for our existence, then we should be able to figure out with a great deal of work and goodwill how to share the earth with one another and with other creatures, how to restore and preserve its elegance and grace, and how to commit ourselves to love and joy and laughter and hope. Thank you, Steve. And I love having a moment to show appreciation and love to, <laughs> to your pet there. That was, that was a beautiful touch. Um, <laughs> and that's certainly the heart of Dr. Goodenough's uh, creative of continuation. So I want to shift gears for just a moment here and ask a question. Have you ever given much thought to the church year? That's an exciting question, right? It's what we're all here for this morning to talk about a church year. But hear me out here. It's something I believe we should explore because it's relevant to our community. Church years are a weird thing. They're different than the calendar year. They're different than a fiscal year. They're certainly different than an academic year, though Unitarian Universalists have a church year that's very similar to the academic year. It's something that impacts your clergy and your religious professionals, you know, music directors, administrators, and uh, directors of religious education. Uh, impacts them probably more than anyone else. We think in Sundays. My brain is trained to look at the seventh day as one of prime importance. All other days give shape to it. Ask me what the Sundays are each month and I can tell you without any hesitation, but also the way religious professionals look at the year is different. We run on a harvest to summer solstice schedule. September to June. 
And in our tradition, July and August were traditionally times when the churches would go, as they would describe it, they would go dark, as in they closed completely. Unitarians adopted this model of church way back when our tethers to academia, specifically Harvard and Yale, uh, were much closer. Ministers would vacation along with everyone else in their congregations for those two months. Summer-only churches would open up across New England, uh, either in northern New England or on the Cape. And to this day, there are still churches like that in Vermont and Massachusetts, open for two months only every year. My own church back in Hinsdale, Illinois, only recently started having regular summer services because their heritage was distinctly Unitarian before they became Unitarian Universalist. Now, the Universalists, of course, would have church year-round, and you can tell who dominated our merger when the Unitarians and Universalists came together in 1961. But when you look closer at our church year, there are other patterns that emerge. When the end of November comes, certain decorations get put up, and certain churchy language starts to be spoken, and it leads naturally to Christmas. Some churches take note of Epiphany in January, the, the traditional story when the wise men visited the baby Jesus and, ah, they realized who Jesus was. And then it's a quick leap to Lent, a season that you use aren't really sure about, though I would hope one day we would have some sort of season of mindful practice as a community. And then there's Easter. Another day we have mixed feelings about, but one we honor nonetheless. Few Unitarian Universalist churches make the jump to Pentecost 50 days after Easter, and that's May 23rd this year. And historically, Pentecost is considered the birthday of the Christian movement, which we owe much of our heritage to. It's undeniable. We come out of Protestant Christianity. And from there, rinse and repeat. A long march to Advent, and there we go. I find great beauty in the Christian church year, how they tell their story time and time again. And it's a rhythm to the church year that Unitarian Universalists have mostly adopted. It's the flow that works pretty well, especially culturally. There's a whole discussion that we could have about time, of course, right? <laughs> what does, is the meaning of time and how is time segmented? The Nahua people of Central America, for example, uh, divide the day into four segments and the night into seven segments instead of hours. And their clockwise is our counterclockwise because they follow the sun from east to west facing north and it goes the other way. But time is an interesting thing and that's why I'm going down this path a little bit. When you think about it, the way in which we designate and carve out names, containers, spans, months, weeks, days, minutes, there's a power in that. I'm not going to get into theories of time and quantum physics or anything like that. I want to focus on the power, a power that strikes at our identity as a community, a culture, a nation, and so on and so forth. Now, for us, for right here, I don't think it's a power that will rock our world but I do think it's a power that guides us and could potentially lead us down a formative path as Unitarian Universalists. But that requires me to ask questions of all of us. 
How many Unitarian Universalists find the seasons of Advent, Epiphany, Lent, Pentecost, and so on? How many of us find that those seasons inform and impact our spiritual and religious journeys? I wonder how many people would say, oh yeah, that impacts me. Now, if you're a church nerd like me, perhaps you get excited about some of those. When Pentecost comes, I am elated every year. I can tell you the exact liturgical colors. I love the tongues of fire and the streamers and it's glorious. But for most Unitarian Universalists, how do these seasons inform us, if at all? And it isn't about whether or not we like Christmas or Easter. Those will always be important to our heritage in, in some way as this kind of ultra Protestant movement that we are. I'm more interested in the seasons themselves, the spans of time. Is 40 days of Lent something you take note of? Four weeks of Advent, did you take notice of those? 50 days leading to Pentecost, how many of you have that on your calendar? It's a question I've been asking myself a lot lately, and it's a question I didn't realize I would have to ask. I've shared bits and pieces about my Doctor of Ministry dissertation with you all and just glimpses into what I was thinking and where I'd like to go. And partly because of the pandemic and partly because I'm a perfectionist and of course the usual politics of academia, which are a delight, I'm taking just a little longer to finish it. But the ideas are there on paper, just a few more tweaks to go. What does that have to do with time? And what does it have to do with seasons? Originally, I wanted to solve what I view as our liturgical problem as Unitarian Universalists, while at the same time carving out some new way forward for a religious perspective rooted in nature, rooted in reason and science, rooted in the here and now. In many ways, our liturgy, the flow of a Sunday morning, at least when we're in person, is decidedly Protestant Christian. If you take the 16th century Puritan order of worship and compare it to modern Unitarian Universalist orders of worship, it's almost the same. Just a few differences. They didn't really have announcements back then. <laughs> there are some trappings of our merger in 1961 that we've yet to let go of when we decided that we were stepping outside of Protestant Christianity. And so I've had to ask myself, what is the solution for that? And who's doing the work on this? I've also wanted to ensure that there was a religious naturalist perspective. That's naturalist, not naturist. Um, I get that question a lot. And I have nothing against naturists and their clothing optional lifestyle. It is just not for me. But religious naturalism, which looks to the questions of the religious and our lives and boldly proclaims one single principle, nature is enough, is a perspective that many of you have found a home in upon being introduced to it. Nature is enough for our source of meaning, our inspiration, our grounding in both the practical and the transcendent, though really there's nothing to transcend when you realize nature is the ultimate source of meaning. As you heard in the reading from uh, Dr. Ursula Goodenough in her book, The Sacred Depths of Nature, and she writes again, and so I profess my faith, 
for me, the existence of all this complexity and awareness and intent and beauty and my ability to apprehend it serves as the ultimate meaning and the ultimate virtue. Religious naturalism is a perspective that makes no claims about the supernatural. It instead says that there's a different way of knowing, of being spiritual, of being religious. That our source of knowing is nature, plainly stated, right there, right here, right now. I asked Dr. Goodenough once, what if someone finds value in religious naturalism but also believes in a God? And she replied, it doesn't matter. What does matter is how your beliefs inspire you to live out your values. And so in many ways, I believe religious naturalism is, the, is perfectly suited to Unitarian Universalism. It does not reject our varied paths. It honors diversity of belief. It asserts that reason and science are how our beliefs should be tempered. All the while, it centers the natural world. While you use acknowledge, which you use acknowledge, is something that is not separate from us in our seventh principle. But we instead are an inseparable strand in a vast web of this planet and the universe. And if you're unfamiliar with our seventh principle, it talks about the interconnected web of existence, interdependent web of existence, interconnected works just as well, of which we are all a part. And so all of that, how do we look at what we do every Sunday and shape it into something that holds that perspective? How do the categories change, right? Instead of joys and sorrows being a manifestation of the prayers of the people from the Protestant tradition, how do we imbue it with a deeper meaning that our joys and sorrows are part of the interconnected web, the tree of life, the branches of community? Use whatever metaphor you like. How does a call to worship move from a pale imitation of invoking worship of a deity to celebrating the here and the now in our lives, this beautiful eternal now? How does a benediction move away from some semblance of asking for divine guidance and blessing to words that compel us to move boldly into the day before us, boldly into our lives, serving needs greater than our own and finding beauty and wonder in every breath? I could go on, right? But those were the questions that I had to ask. And I felt Unitarian Universalists, everything that we do and who we are and serving in this church now for almost six years, we are almost there as a religious tradition. And so it required me to ask another question. Is our liturgy, what we do on Sunday morning, really the problem? Or is it what the liturgy is beholden to? In other words, the church year. Is that where the disconnect truly is? Because in many ways, with a few changes to what we do as a community, we would have a religious naturalist liturgy rooted in the here and now, celebrating nature and our connection to it. In many ways, we already do. It's what I preach and teach continually, the eternal here and now. But it's not lining up with the seasons we follow. What do we do with Advent and Lent and Pentecost? The question I'm interested in asking now and having communities such as ours ask is, how do we create our own liturgical church years, our own moments of time that are anchored in the here and the now? 
asking that realizes that a year in Kentucky is a different year than say Alaska or Minnesota. The seasons are different and take different shapes and forms. And what are the seasons that we look forward to in nature that give shape to our daily lives here in Lexington? How can we take note of them and integrate them more fully into our lives? And here's the best example of a ritual and liturgical disconnect. Have you ever seen those images of Santa Claus water skiing in Australia? The symbols of a European dominated Christmas season does not mesh <laughs> with the Australian climate. And so what would we call this time that we are in right now? Would we let go of the Easter label and instead take note that in April in Kentucky is the blooming of dogwoods and the emergence of the lush green around us? Is there a season that we can give a name that period of time? Do we have a name for that? Would January and February no longer be epiphany and candlemas, but instead a season of ice and freezing and dormancy? Would September be given over to the skippers, those beautiful little butterflies with their massive eyes full of awareness and life? I could keep going and going and going, but those are examples, just a few. What themes emerge for you in Kentucky? Just as Pentecost is a season of fire and birth for our Christian siblings, what would a season of freezing ice and being dormant have to teach us in January and February? What do we learn from the skippers, the other butterflies, the dogwoods? What do we learn from the season of harvest in our state? What, if anything, does the culture around horses, bourbon, tobacco, mining, uh, what do they have to teach us? What lessons, good or bad, be, can be drawn from the deep well that is Kentucky? What this is all about is having a religion of the here and now, a religion that is relevant, a religion that asks us to take the charge of Ralph Waldo Emerson seriously, uh, in which he writes in the opening lines of his book, Nature. And this beautiful little copy here, which is 116 years old, was lovingly restored by UUCL member Michael Taylor. And so here now, these words from, it's over 116 years old that he wrote this, from Emerson. Our age is retrospective. It builds the sepulchers, the tombs of the fathers and mothers. It writes biographies, histories, and criticism. The forgoing generations beheld God and nature face to face, but we through their eyes. Why should not we also enjoy an original relation to the universe? Why should not we have a poetry and philosophy and of insight and not of tradition and a religion by revelation to us and not the history of theirs? Embosomed for a season in nature whose floods of life stream around and through us and invite us by the powers they supply to action proportioned nature. Why should we grope among the dry bones of the past or put the living generation into masquerade out of its faded wardrobes. Gotta love the turns of phrase here from the mid 1800s. The sun shines today also. There is more wool and flax in the fields. There are new lands, new people, and new thoughts. Let us demand our own works and laws and worship. 
I would consider those words from Emerson to be the Unitarian Universalist version of the Great Commission found in the Gospel of Matthew. Go therefore unto the nations proclaiming a religion of the here and now. Invite people to behold nature face to face through their own senses. Let our celebrations and rituals be our own. Amen. And in order to do that, it requires us to have weird discussions about how we give shape to time, to seasons, to moments, and to empower not just our religious professionals, but each and every one of us to look to the natural world. And so I ask you, what seasons do you see and feel and notice? What birds give shape to the air this time of year? What animals emerge from their slumber? What insects do we discover? What blooming and bursting forth of life is right here, right now? And when autumn and winter come along, what do we notice then as those seasons unfold? This isn't just about time. It's about taking hold of our heretic history and continuing to forge ahead on new ventures of giving new meanings to the word church to our gathering as a congregation. And so there you have it. What I'm writing is about reimagining the church year in a Unitarian Universalist congregation anchored in religious naturalism and asking how do we empower our congregations to create new liturgies and new years that give shape to our spiritual journeys in a relevant way. I look outside today and I see that indeed the dogwoods are continuing to bloom. There is a maple whose leaves are unfolding. There are seeds dropping to the ground. Some of the tulips and daffodils are hanging on for dear life and the dandelions are blooming in glory. When did we start treating them as filthy weeds? Because they can indeed be beautiful. And I wanna remember the joy I had with dandelions as a child. I see that there are squirrels and blue jays and robins looking to build nests, carrying around pieces of dried grass. And I see the bees buzzing around the flowers and the bushes and so much more that is going unnoticed. This isn't just a season of Easter of telling a story for me. This is a season of all of those things outside my window right here in Lexington, Kentucky. This is the season of such things. And that is all the glory I need to be anchored in this moment right here and right now. So blessed be, and may it be so. Can we turn the chat back on?